Today's scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, I will conclude the reading with, this is the word of the Lord. And I invite you to respond with, thanks be to God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we find ourselves living in a moment in which we are more connected than we have ever been before. Means of communication that would have been dismissed as science fiction from the funny papers just a generation ago are now a ubiquitous part of our everyday lives. For example, found out this past week that one of my college roommates had an unexpected visit from his college-age son due to Hurricane Ian. How do I know this bit of information? It's not because I actually talked to my old roommate or that he sent me an email. No, I learned it from his social media account. Do you remember when social media first came out and we were told it was going to unify us? That it was supposed to bring us all together via the shared information and the shared occurrences of our daily lives. But by any metric you want to point to, the exact opposite has happened. We're more connected, but we're also more divided than we've ever been before. MAGA or never Trump? Vax or anti-vax? Mask? No mask. Those issues have made the debates over who ought to succeed Scott Frost as the next football coach at Nebraska seem very tame by comparison. Well, while our level of connectedness is new and unprecedented, this level of cultural division certainly is not. Paul writes the book of Romans to a group of believers who were much more diverse and lived in a solidly gentrified culture. Our division looks nothing compared to the divisions within Roman culture. Roman citizens were at the top of the social ladder. Non-citizen free folk were next, and slaves were at the very bottom of the ladder. And there was always this kind of tenuous dance that was going on, because in the city of Rome at the time in which Paul is writing, half the population of Rome was made up of slaves. And then if you were a particularly troublesome ethnic minority, like, say, the Jews, you were considered a different category of person altogether. But in the opening chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us 
he makes it clear that all of humanity, citizen, non-citizen, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, we all share a common problem. There is a way in which we are all united, and it's not that we all use Facebook or Instagram. We are all sinners who stand justly condemned before God. Therefore, our great problem is this. We all face the wrath of God. And what hope could the unrighteous have before the wrath of an all-knowing, all-powerful, righteous creator? That's the case that Paul has been making in Genesis, excuse me, in Revelation, I'll get it right, in Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 up through Romans chapter 3 verse 20. And then we come to our text this morning, and we come to that glorious conjunction at the beginning of verse 21, but, but, God is going to do something different. The wrath of God is not going to be the final word for unrighteous men and women. Now, this morning, as we think about this particular text, I want to give you something called the big idea. The big idea in one sentence is hopefully what the sermon is about. So the big idea for this morning is this. God alone offers a suitable solution to a universal human predicament. Let me give that to you again. God alone offers a suitable solution to a universal human predicament. Predicament. So, two things we want to do this morning. First, we want to understand the predicament. And then secondly, we want to lay hold of the solution. So first, let's understand the predicament. Now, Paul sums up everything that he's been talking about in the first three chapters, again for us in chapter 3, verse 23. If you went through a kind of evangelism training, uh, as I did as a, as a teenager growing up in church, evangelism explosion, then you were probably trained in something called the Romans Road. And the Romans Road included then Romans chapter 3, verse 23, namely, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I remember throwing that out there to unsuspecting uh, just poor pagan folks who had no clue what was about to be unleashed in their living room. And they had no idea what it meant to fall short of the glory of God. And I remember one time uh, someone who decided they'd had enough of just sort of the, the gospel vomiting that was happening in their living room, and they dared to ask a question back. And the question was, well, what does that mean to fall short of the glory of God? And that's a good question for us to think about. What does Paul mean when he says... We've fallen short of God's glory. I mean, could Paul, could he not have chosen more exact or at least less vague language? Scholars give multiple options when it comes to understanding the meaning of the phrase, fallen short of the glory of God. And here's the thing. I think Paul intentionally chose a phrase that has multiple meanings to let us know just, in fact, how many ways we have indeed fallen short of the glory of God. He intentionally chose a phrase with a wide choice of meanings. 
For example, it could be pointing us to the fact that Paul wants us to understand that it's God who sets the standard of righteousness, not you or I. It's God's standard. It's not how you would grade yourself or those you love. It's not what culture thinks of what you're doing, thinking, or saying, and is letting you know that surely you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. No, God is the final arbiter of whether or not our thoughts, words, and actions are righteous. And Paul tells us that we have fallen short of God's standard. It's easy, isn't it, as we look at the world around us, particularly as it feels like we're just sort of, we're just kind of going to hell in a handbasket and we're doing so in the express line, to look around and go, okay, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a mess, but I'm not as bad as that person. Yeah, my life is not great, but it's not the total dumpster fire that that person over there is. When we moved to Fremont 12 years ago, uh, we had... Uh, neighbors across our street, and they had a daughter about our daughter's age, and then there was an older couple who lived next door to us, and they were really nice. Uh, He's an airline pilot, and our son at the time was fascinated with airplanes, and so there are all kinds of great conversations, and we got to know both of our neighbors across the street, and 12 years later, uh, there have been divorces on both sides. And because I'm a pastor, people come and tell me stuff. They tell me stuff I don't really want to know. And I'm like, I'm not your pastor. You need Jesus, not me. But I know at the end of the day, understanding something of the situation, in both instances, it was uh, the husbands who either failed morally or were just kind of a knucklehead. And it's really easy, isn't it? It would be really easy for me to look at my own life and my own performance and my own role as a husband and to go, okay, I'm not great, but you know what? I'm not as bad as Steve. Well, friends, we can't play that game because that's not the standard. God sets the standard and he tells us that we have fallen short of his glory. Now, that phrase can also mean that we're guilty of taking the glory that's rightly due to God and giving it somewhere else. That we value and esteem other things more highly than we value and esteem God himself. In other words, Paul is telling us that uh, reduce it down, our core problem is this, we're all idolaters. We've all elevated some created thing above the creator. And here's the problem. Here's the bad news. And it's bad news even if you're a believer this morning. John Calvin said this. He said that the human heart is an idol factory. It's true. So what happens is this. I take God's good gifts like my family, like my work, like my health, like uh, the physical body that we've been gifted with, I take that and I value it, I esteem it above God himself. And so these really good things that God has given me, like my family or my kids, like Nebraska football, (laughs) I take them and I 
I value them above God himself. When we have friends who come and visit Nebraska, of course, we drive down to Lincoln, and uh, I will, I'm, and I'm not even joking when I say this, uh, as we drive past Memorial Stadium, I'll let them know that is the largest house of worship in our state. Because it is. 90,000 people show their devotion eight times a year. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's our predicament. So what's the solution? And how do we lay hold of it? Well, we need to stop here for just a moment and remind ourselves of what the book of Romans really is before we get to words like justification and redemption and propitiation and we lose our minds and then we turn a sermon into a theology lecture. Romans, at its heart, is a missionary support letter. Paul wants to travel to Rome but he's not just going to hang out because he really likes Italian food. Uh, Paul's going to go from Rome into Spain because he wants to preach the gospel there. And he wants the prayers and financial support of the seven different gatherings that are uh, meeting in different places and in different houses in Rome. He wants the prayers and financial support of the church in, in Rome as they send him out to take the gospel to Spain. And since Paul is a gospel guy... He's laying out the gospel that it's the heart of his church planting labor. Hey, I want you to send me as a missionary, but I want you to know the message that I'm going to be proclaiming. I want you to know what it is that I'm going there to do. And since Paul is a gospel guy, not only is he sharing it to let them know what he's going to be doing, but he's also equipping the saints in Rome to be able to do their own evangelism. You see, the solution to our universal human predicament can be boiled down to one idea, namely the character of God. And so here's the question, here's the problem that we have to come to grips with. How can unrighteous people be declared righteous and God not be a corrupt judge? How can unrighteous people be declared righteous and God not be a corrupt judge? Or here's how one commentator put the problem. Uh, he's a Brit, so it's a little cheeky, uh, if you know what I mean. He says, how can God be right when he knows that I'm wrong and yet tells me that I'm right? How can God be right when he knows that I'm wrong and yet tells me that I'm right? Is God engaging in some sort of sleight of hand or spin? I mean, there have to be deleted emails or something somewhere <laughs> that are going to surface and we're going to see that God is just being corrupt. Well, Paul, in answering the question the way he does and in focusing on the character of God, he's equipping the Roman church to do their own evangelism. You see, the gods of the Romans were not a high-character bunch. If you've read the Iliad or if you've read the Odyssey, then you know the gods were petty. And they were, given, uh, they were given to fits of jealousy and anger and lust and all sorts of less-than-ideal behavior. 
And so Paul's helping them to answer the question, is the God of the Christians the same as those gods? When they go to tell their pagan friends and neighbors and family members about the God of the Bible, is he the same as Zeus? Is he the same as Poseidon? Is he the same as Mars? But friends, let's understand that this isn't just something that Paul is doing so that we can share the gospel with other people. This is something that Paul is doing so that we can preach the gospel to ourselves. I wonder, have you ever had a time in your life in which you've wondered whether or not God is good? In which you've wondered whether or not God is just? Hey, God, I know you're all powerful. I know you rule everything, and that's great. Bully for you. But I don't think you're very good at your job. You ever thought that? I have. And so Paul walks us through. He uses three words to summarize the just and the gracious character of God. Here they are. The first one is justified. Justified. It's not just a great TV show. It's a rich theological concept. It means that a judge declares you not guilty. But more than just forgiveness, more than just a declaration of non-guilt, it's is, is in essence, it's a legal term that says, not only are you not guilty, but there were no grounds for judgment. So in other words, you shouldn't have even been there in the first place. Now, again, we sit back and we go, no, wait, Paul, you just told us that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so which is it? And the answer is yes. But how does that happen Look at verse 24. You're justified by his grace as a gift. It's unmerited favor that you don't deserve. And you didn't earn it. So Christians, let me just say, I'm, I'm not your pastor, so I can say stuff your pastor would like to say to you, but he can't because he's got to live with you, right? <laughs> Stop trying to earn it. Like, just stop it. By the way, there's a fantastic uh, skit that uh, the late Bob Newhart did. Uh, just go to YouTube and put in Bob Newhart, stop it. You'll thank me later. And here's what I want to say to you who think you're somehow going to earn God's gift because you don't drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. Stop it. Stop it. Let me ask you a question. Let's suppose you had a, a, a family member that you loved dearly. And you were at a point in your life, you didn't necessarily have a lot of means, but they had a, there was a party coming up, it was their birthday, and you do what you got to do, and you go and you present them this wonderful gift, and they turn around and they reach in their back pocket and they say, hey, can I pay you for it? It's a gift. Say thank you. Say thank you a lot. And stop trying to earn it. 
We've been justified, but then we've also been redeemed. Now, redeemed in the ancient world was a financial term. Uh, If you had something of value and you took it to a guy who dealt in things of value and then gave you money in return, in other words, a pawn shop, they would give you a ticket and you could take the ticket back and you would hand it to them and you could redeem the item that you had pawned for the original cost plus whatever kind of exorbitant interest they were going to charge you. But redeemed in the Bible is not just a financial term, it's also a Bible word. And Paul has already told us that the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So in other words, the Old Testament is going to bear witness to this kind of uh, redemption that Paul is talking about. And indeed it does. In the book of Exodus, we're told that God redeems his people from slavery. He delivers them. He leads them out. He conquers the one who thought he was a God so that his people could go free. But friends, that's not the only place that redeemed shows up. There are two more instances in the Old Testament, and there's more than that, but we want to think about two and they're beautiful, and they're beautiful because the objects of the, of the redemption don't fit what we would think in terms of someone who would be worthy of redeeming. The first is found in the book of Ruth. Ruth has been dutiful to her mother-in-law. She's been dutiful to her mother-in-law's God. She's gone to work. God has provided for her. And when we get to Ruth chapter 4, we see the wonderful and beautiful and unexpected way that God provides a redeemer for Ruth. And then in the book of Hosea, which is even more striking, and Ruth is an unlikely candidate because she's a Moabite. Moabites were not the kinds of folks you would invite to dinner. But as if that was not a scandalous enough picture of God's grace and redemption, God says, I'll see you and I'll raise you one more. And so when we get to the book of Hosea, we see God telling his prophet to take for himself a wife who he knows is going to be unfaithful to him. He knows right from the get-go. And in fact, God points her out, says, this is the woman, she's going to be unfaithful to you. And then in Hosea chapter 3, God commands Hosea, hey, I want you to go and I want you to redeem your adulterous wife whose heart belongs to another. Friends, being redeemed is more than just being liberated. Being redeemed means you are the object of affection whether or not you deserve it. Because you don't. Ruth, you can argue, yes, Ruth is a virtuous woman. In fact, she's the Proverbs 31 woman. Gomer? Her behavior's so bad we turn her name into a dude's name. And then make a bad TV show about it. No, see... Being redeemed is more than just you've been liberated, you've been freed. It's more than just uh, that, uh, that you've somehow been delivered. No, 
You've been freed from the very wrath of God. And by the way, you're not worthy of the redemption. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. So now we got to step back and go, okay, the fix really is in. Right? Because I don't, I really don't deserve this redemption. I mean, I'm Gomer. My heart regularly belongs to someone other than God. And yet God is going to say, hey, it's cool. I've redeemed you. At that point, you got to go, God, listen, I appreciate all the affection. But this is like, like, bro, you need to go on Dr. Phil. Like, you need some serious relational help because there's like some kind of weird codependency thing happening here. And we need to get that. But you're, you're not being just. Well, here it comes. Look at verse 25 in Romans chapter 3. He talks about his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now we get to how it is that the fix isn't in. Now we get to understanding how it is that God is actually on the up and up. We're told that God put his son Jesus forward as a propitiation. What's that mean? It means that in the crushing of his son, the wrath of God has been satisfied against our sin. It means that God's wrath is removed. It doesn't just mean that we've been forgiven. It doesn't just mean that we've been cleansed. It means that the wrath of God that was our universal human problem has been removed from us. Not because we did anything, but because of what God did through his son, Jesus Christ. And because that's true, look at verse 26. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier. So if you're sitting here this morning going... Pastor, I don't know if God is good. Friend, stop listening to yourself and preach the gospel to yourself. He is both just and justifier. He has declared you not guilty. He has redeemed you even though your heart belongs to another. And he can do so because in crushing his son on the cross, his wrath has been satisfied and it's been removed from you. He's just and justifier. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm really good at forgetting stuff that I shouldn't, like car keys. I'm even more adept at forgetting really important things like the fact that God is both just and justifier and that I need to stop listening to myself and instead preach the gospel to myself. And God condescends to us all the time. Not just in the sending of his son, but God condescends for us in the meal that we're about to eat. For in the table... God lets us see and touch and taste what he has done on our behalf. We are reminded that in the crushing of his son, God's wrath has been satisfied. 
that we come this morning not just to remember, hey, Jesus is my Savior. Okay, yes, he is. But do you know what that means? It's not so that you can have your best life now. No, it means that the fundamental human problem has been solved, not by you, not by me. God solved it himself. He sent his son to die in our place. He poured out his wrath, not on you and I as lawbreakers, but he poured out his wrath on his son. And now he invites us, as those who were once called not my people, which by the way is the name that uh, God told Hosea to give one of his kid children, (laughs) Uh, name your son, not my son. We who were once called not my people are now called God's people. Why? Because you're good enough and you're smart enough and doggone it, people like you. It's by his grace as a gift. Let's pray.